0: Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up later, people renting everyday items? Wow, I don't like that idea. Wait till you hear what people are renting instead of owning. Clark.com is our main website. ClarkDeals.com is where you find the best deals on buying things. So... Speaking of deal, no deal, there's a new survey from move.org on the average cost of living in the 75 largest metro areas in the country. So, you want to guess what's the most expensive city to live in the United States according to their research? San Francisco. Now, in San Francisco, just to exist, it costs, this is shocking, over $4,200 a month. By comparison, in the cheapest major metro area in the United States, which is El Paso, Texas, it's $1,100 per month. Basically, one-fourth the cost of living for the cheapest place versus the most expensive. Now, what I was really surprised about was I thought the answer would be Honolulu, because most surveys say that Honolulu is the most expensive place in the country. But Honolulu, even though it was, well, pretty expensive, 2600 and change a month, Nothing compared to San Francisco's 4200 And there are quite a few places in the United States, in fact, more than half of the 75 largest metro areas in the country where you can live comfortably on less than $2,000 a month. So Dallas is the last one of the major cities that you can live in under $2,000 a month. But where else? St. Paul and the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, Houston, Raleigh, Detroit, Phoenix, Virginia Beach, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, San Antonio, Henderson, Nevada, which is a suburb of Las Vegas, Cleveland, Fort Worth. So Dallas and Fort Worth both make the list, but Fort Worth is a lot cheaper Kansas City, Columbus, Colorado Springs, Jacksonville, Florida, Plano, Texas, suburb of Dallas, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, Bakersfield, California, kind of a suburb of Los Angeles, Vegas, St. Louis, Fresno, Stockton, Tucson, Corpus Christi, Omaha, Greensboro, North Carolina, Arlington, Texas, also part of the Dallas Metroplex, Oklahoma City, Mesa, part of the Phoenix metro area. Albuquerque, Lexington, Kentucky, Memphis, Tulsa, Louisville, Wichita, Toledo, Lincoln, Nebraska, and then at number one, El Paso, cheapest. Why did I name all those? Because normally I would just talk about the ones that were the cheapest and most expensive and leave out the big part of the story, which is major metro areas where you can live comfortably on less than $2,000 a month least according to their methodology. And the reason I want you to think about that is so many people live in high-cost metro areas where the chances you're ever going to be able to own a home or live a normal middle-class life becomes out of reach for so many people. So for you to know, let's say you're at a career decision-making point in your life or you've You're tired of putting up with the life you live wherever you are. I want you to know there are alternatives, and a lot of them are very affordable. So it's your future, it's your wallet, and I want you to know that you're not stuck wherever you are. Sarah is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Sarah.
1: Hi, Clark. How are you?
0: Great. Thank you, Sarah. You're going on a honeymoon.
1: I am. We are getting married next year.
0: Congratulations to you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So your family like the guy?
1: Yeah, they like him. Okay. (laughs) So my question is, we already live together, and instead of a registry or maybe a small registry, we were going to do a honeymoon fund, which I heard has been very popular amongst Um, newlyweds lately and i was just curious as to which honeymoon fund website or honeymoon registered website is the best with the least amount of fees and costs for us
0: well the easiest and cheapest way to do it since it will only be family and friends that would be contributing Mm
1: -hmm.
0: is to have them use venmo okay are you familiar with venmo already
1: yeah i have the app
0: yeah so you know how easy it is with venmo And there's no cost to you or the giver.
1: Okay.
0: And so if you do Venmo, instead of using one of these third-party honeymoon things, there's a lot of savings in that because any of those, anything ever tied into wedding is always more expensive than when the word wedding isn't in it. Yeah. So I would not use any of those sites that promote that they're for your honeymoon funds. Okay. Because you're paying, is it 7% for those?
1: I'm not sure. I've seen a few different ones. Um, I had a friend who used one. She said they took a small percentage, but she didn't give me the exact percentage.
0: So zero percentage is better than some percentage. Yes. And I'm going to make a suggestion to you that I recommend to any bride-to-be Uh And that is that you give people a choice that you say, we'd love for you to give. If you have a favorite charity.
1: I mean, there's a few that I would donate to.
0: All right. So let me tell you what I'm going to say. and You can take this and do whatever you want with it. Mm -hmm. Some people who are being invited to your wedding are going to not appreciate being asked to give a contribution towards your honeymoon. They're going to look at that. Excuse the expression, they're going to look at that as crass.
1: Okay.
0: I don't see any problem with it at all. I think it's great because you got 100% efficiency on the money they're giving. But Mm -hmm. in order to deal with the small percent of people who would object to that, you can say, in lieu of a gift, we would love a donation to our honeymoon fund through this Venmo account or a donation to my favorite charity, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And that way you've given people an opportunity to give, if they don't like the idea of giving you money towards your honeymoon, you've given them another way to honor your wedding that they're going to feel really good about, and you're going to be able to do something great for an organization that means something to you.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: So just my thought, and do with it what you wish. Tim is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Tim. Hi, Tim.
2: Clark, hi. I'm so excited. I've benefited from a lot of your
0: recommendations. So
2: this is so great.
0: Well, thank you, Tim. And you sold your home. Has that been a good event or a bad event?
2: Well, it's under contract. The closing's coming up. And we had high equity just because we bought foreclosed 10 years ago. And the market's done really well. And we actually already bought a new place, Clark, with a low-down payment, 3.4% loan. And so I'll have some equity pulled out of the old house. I listen to your show, so I know you're going to recommend a Roth. So I'm, I'm definitely going to max out a Roth IRA this year. I've got a 401k going on at work that's doing well, and I also own a rental property. So I'm just trying to find the best use of this money. I'm not a big fan of debt, um, but paying it down just seems like a good option, especially since with a higher standard deduction, there's there's a little less benefit for holding a mortgage interest. So
0: I um, just want to know. Yeah, this one's tough this. because – you have, you have what I would call good dilemmas in your life. You have minimal debt, I'm gathering, other than that 3.4% mortgage. Right. And that is an incredibly low interest rate. Over the long haul, investing that money in a broad stock index fund or a variety of stock funds you're almost certainly over the years, even though you could have up and down years, you're very likely to well out-earn that 3.4%. However, there's the psychological benefit of being mortgage debt-free, and you know you have the guaranteed return of 3.4%. Are you telling me that you'd really like to extinguish that mortgage debt or pay down an enormous amount of it? Is that what you're thinking?
2: Well, I think there are benefits on both sides. And when I look at making an a investment in a mutual fund or something, I just I feel like stocks right now are, are a bit oversold, and there's a lot of volatility, and it just doesn't seem like the best time to go in, but I don't know.
0: Well, no, you are right, and there will be corrections, there will be bear markets, bear market where you lose 20% or more, and that stuff happens over the normal course of time. But if you're time that you need to put money aside is long enough it becomes pretty much irrelevant what happens in the shorter term and so when i say long enough that's when you go out past 10 years yeah but part of this is psychological too so the money you have that you will get at the closing table is it enough to zero out that 3.4 percent mortgage or substantially reduce it
2: yeah, very very close. It would be down to probably just a couple of years left after paying it down. So,
0: so I mean, so. you do have when I when I go from this shoulder to the other shoulder, you know, because I really am not ecstatic about you paying off a three point four. But then when I think about what you could do, and I'm, and you're talking to somebody who is a hundred percent debt free. I just despise debt. So if you were to say, you know what, I feel most comfortable just wiping out that debt. What you could do moving forward is you make sure you max out Roths every year. And are you married, Tim? Yeah, we're married. No kids yet. So your wife can do the full amount into a Roth each year as well. Okay. And so then you wouldn't have to worry if you're putting money in monthly into a Roth or you're putting money in uh, even one chunk a year. You are doing a method called dollar cost averaging. If you just like every month, which is best, like clockwork, you put in the money into the Roth and you put that in every month, the market goes down in the short run. It means the next month your money buys you more shares and it it levels out the risk. So if it feels most comfortable to do that, blow out that mortgage and then set yourself on a path where you're putting that money in every single month moving forward that would have gone towards a mortgage, go for it. And congratulations to you on having gone into an extremely tough housing market a decade ago, having the guts to buy a foreclosure, and now you're reaping the benefits of having done that. Danny's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Danny.
3: Hey, how you doing?
0: Great, thank you, Danny. You're looking at buying a used car. Good for you.
3: Well, no, I have a car or a, a truck, and I'm looking to possibly get a new one. But I'm not sure if I should pay the balance off or if I should trade it in.
0: So you have one you've been in how long?
3: For the last three
1: years.
0: All right, and did you get it new or did you get it used three years ago?
3: I got it used.
0: Okay, is it misbehaving or are you bored with it?
3: I'm bored with it.
0: Okay, so I am so glad you told me that straight out because the truth is vehicles last so long now that usually we tire of them before they're tired. So how far are you from having this vehicle paid off?
3: Actually, I could pay it off tomorrow.
0: Okay. So if you paid it off, could you learn to like it a little more because then you're driving with no payment? Or do yeah, you really need to be want, done with it? Want, I, want, I want a new one. Okay. All right. Well, I want you to pay off the loan before you uh, get rid of this vehicle, particularly if you're going to do a trade-in, because there have been these terrible issues people have had where they trade in a vehicle that still has a loan balance on it and the dealer they trade it into doesn't pay off the loan and it ruins your credit for years. So you definitely want to pay off that loan before you get a next vehicle. Are you? Is your next one going to be a brand new vehicle or is it going to be just a newer used vehicle?
3: New used.
0: Okay. And how old are you thinking? How many years old?
3: It was a 2012 vehicle, and I'm looking for something newer.
0: So Uh, are you willing to look at like a 2015? Yes. Because 2015 model year vehicles seem to be, for most vehicles in the marketplace, seem to be a deal. That's where I'd really be looking right now. Okay. And do you have one particular model you're interested in or there are several you'll consider
3: i have a ford but it's basically it's got the uh two-door which i'm not happy about i would like the crew cab right. I
0: mean, they, people just love having the four-door pickup trucks and if you remember when the crew cab idea first came about the back seat was teensy tiny And you only put people back there for just a little while or little kids or people you didn't like put in that back seat. And now the full crew cabs, the back seat is a really comfortable and roomy back seat. You know, the pickup trucks have been in more demand than passenger cars, a lot of SUVs. So you might not get the kind of deal on it you would if it was another kind of vehicle you were interested in. But looking at the 2015s would be great. And at Clark.com, I have step-by-step how you should go about shopping for that vehicle and the things you should do to make sure that vehicle is one that's going to be reliable for you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. So we have gotten used to, as a society... Doing things where basically we buy things per use. Think about people with transportation who now may use a zip car instead of owning their own car. Or get an Uber or Lyft instead of getting in their own car if they have one. Renting an apartment instead of buying a home as a lifestyle choice, not a money decision. We have become a nation of people who look at paying for things by subscription rather than paying for things that we own. Think Netflix or Hulu or uh, any of the video subscription services, music subscription services like Spotify. And you think about Spotify or Apple Music or Pandora or anything like that, they make perfect sense because instead of buying music and owning it for much less effective money, you have the entire universe of music available to you. That makes sense. But what about you thinking, hey, you know, I like that sweater, but I don't want to buy it. I want to rent it. Or I like that dress. I want to rent it instead of buying it. Or a guy, you know, I like that jacket or that suit or whatever. When does a guy wear a suit? Anyway, the thing is renting things is in or paying for things with microloans is in. I, I saw an item in the Wall Street Journal that just blew my mind that at registers at a lot of retailers... People are being offered the option for an inexpensive clothing item to buy it with payments. So you see a $30 pair of pants, or whatever pants cost. I don't spend that much on pants. But anyway, or whatever the number is. Gosh, I sound clueless, don't I? And finance it over three, four, six months usually with significant interest. Okay, so this is going to make me sound like a a terrible person, but I'm going to say to you, if there's a piece of fashion clothing that you want and you can't afford to pay for it, you should wait till you can pay for it, even if it's gone by the time you have money. Because if you start borrowing money for lifestyle you are going to really harm your financial future. When you rent something like clothing, when you pay for clothing with a micro loan from the register, these are not good choices for your financial health. It's no different than when I take calls from people who say, a car is too expensive, so they're thinking of leasing. You don't lease because you can't afford the payment to buy it. Make good long-term choices for your wallet, not just what feels good at the moment. Janae is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi. Hi.
3: Thanks for taking the call.
0: Absolutely. You are a fellow entrepreneur.
3: Yes. Yes. Fairly newly um, and I'm still pretty small, but I'm looking for the best payment processor for out-of-state clients, and to get away from using physical checks.
0: So um, when people pay you, how are they actually paying you typically? Do you take credit cards?
3: Actually, customarily, I'm paid in retainers, usually about 50% of a bill up front, and that usually has been coming traditionally in checks. So um, I've been getting, you know, checks with all of their bank account information in the mail, and it's a little bit outdated. So the security and um, technology are the biggest concerns for me.
0: So you, with your bank, they can help you set up receiving payments by ACH, okay, w- which is Automated Clearing House, and okay. it is what people often will refer to as an automated check or online check. And so all you need is people put in the transit numbers from the bottom of their check, and then the money is credited to your account virtually instantly. Okay. And that is the most common way that you could accept those payments, and there's no cost to you. Okay. Now, I'll tell you a lot of other people with small businesses use PayPal.
3: Right. And I've, I've looked at PayPal, and the problem with them is that my, I'm paid in larger checks. And so for each transaction, it might be like 50 to $150 of fees that they take, which is
0: Now that's you know, if somebody pays you by credit card.
3: <laughs> well, I don't, maybe I'm doing something wrong with PayPal then because I checked the goods and services, and I send out a link, the PayPal.me link, And it it took out the 3%
0: fee. 3%, which is what you'd pay Mm -hmm. if you were taking a credit card from somebody. So I'm surprised by that. Um,
3: Yeah, there may be a way around it. I've looked at several different things. I know there's PayPal business payments, but you have to have, like, an account with a Harvest accounting software or one of their partners, and they don't necessarily advertise who those partners are.
0: Well, I'll tell you as... As an alternative, the ACH would certainly be the easiest way for you to do it, but in the case of sending money, let me see here, no fees, send money to family and friends, fee to send money is a personal payment using a credit card, receiving money. So I don't see the fee thing you were talking about for receiving payments that are non-credit card as a business maybe i'm just missing something but doing the ach would avoid the fees
3: yeah that sounds that sounds great and that just involves me getting together with my bank and it doesn't really matter what bank it is
0: right okay makes no difference but okay. i'm i'm still thinking you're dealing with people across state lines uh-huh. their transaction sizes are quite large Mm-hmm. Are there deals you would be more likely to make if you allowed people to pay those deposits by credit card?
3: Um, that has not tr- traditionally been a barrier, and I don't know if it's just... Then don't spend the, that money. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's I mean, where
0: ACH would, ACH would be but. the best.
3: I, I think so, yeah. yeah. So I mean, do you nice have, have, at the offer. bank
0: you do business with, do you have a representative appointed to you?
3: Yes, more or less. I have a specific.
0: And how sharp do they seem? (laughs) Not very. Are are you dealing with a a small local bank or are you dealing with a giant monster mega bank?
3: It's regional.
0: Okay. If you can't find somebody knowledgeable there, this may be an incentive time for you to look at going to a smaller, really business-oriented bank that's just a branch or two. Okay. Okay. And the question you're asking is one that should be easy and automatic to walk you through and have that done. And I do, there are any of a number of situations where people pay my corporation by ACH and it's a simple thing and I know I have collected funds when I get the money. And it looks like you are right on the PayPal thing, even if somebody paying you, does not use a credit card, which seems very strange to me. I'm going to look into that some more after we finish talking today. Tammy is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Tammy. How are you doing? Great. How are you?
4: I'm doing all right. My husband and I own a rental property, and the mortgage was transferred over to a big bank, and when I got the letter and found out who it was being transferred to, my heart just—or you know, my head. Oh. It's a bank that's been in a lot of trouble this year. And actually, I was listening to your podcast last week, and you were talking about this bank, and you not oh, a Wells Fargo talk. again? Yeah. So when I heard that, I was like, I think I'm going to contact Clark and. I don't know, besides refinancing, are there any options that I have?
0: Yeah, I mean, don't do not do anything as radical as refinancing unless the economics of your loan would make it make sense to refinance. Tell me some okay. about your existing mortgage.
4: We owe 80000 on it. Our interest rate is 3.5%.
0: Yeah, you don't touch that loan. Yeah. So here's how you handle, it's not just Wells Fargo, although they're more of a problem, obviously, because... They're such a messed up organization, but any time a mortgage is sold, the risk is that the loan balance is not properly transferred, that loan payments are not properly credited. And so there's a simple way that you keep track. Do you know, does Wells send you, will they be sending you a monthly invoice for your mortgage or do they send a coupon book?
4: I don't know yet. It's supposedly all payments are supposed to go to Wells Fargo, and on Saturday was the first contact I had from Wells Fargo, you know, a letter from them saying we're taking over, but there was no coupon book. There was all right, so under the law,
0: let me tell you about how the law works, because there's been fraudulent activity where FACOs pretend that they're your new mortgage servicer, You should receive a letter from both your existing mortgage lender and, in this case, from Wells, Uh and you're given two months to make the change to start sending your payments to Wells Fargo instead of to your prior mortgage lender, your mortgage servicer. Have you received a letter from your prior or current, whatever we want to call them, Mortgage servicer saying that the loan has been sold? Yes. So you have received both letters. hmm Right? So you're still legally within your rights until you receive either an invoice or a coupon book to send your payment to your prior lender instead of to Wells Fargo. Okay. The problem, if you send to Wells Fargo and there's no accompanying processing information, Your loan may go into who knows where, Mm -hmm. and they may, in fact, list you as not having made a payment, as your payment goes to some department that tries to figure out, well, who's this paying us, what loan number is this with, and all that. Okay. So in the letters you've received from both, there's a legal disclosure required that should say exactly what I said to you that you, Uh without being deemed late, can continue to pay twice to your old lender. Okay. Does that ring a bell to you at all that you saw?
4: Not that I remember, but um, I may not have read it as thoroughly as I
0: should have. (laughs) Yeah, go back and look at that and know that they cannot consider you to be late if you send it to the old people at first. Okay. Okay. Because until they've sent you something that you transmit with that's clearly your new loan number and all that with Wells, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, they're so messed up, I wouldn't trust sending it to them without something like that.
4: Okay, yeah, I'm glad you said that about the loan balance not being properly transferred because, like, whenever I receive the payment from my renter's, I immediately make the house payment for the you know, the next month just to know that I did it and don't have to think about it. They've already made the, the December payment you know, in the beginning of November, so I'm going to need to make sure that that was transferred over properly too. to Wells Fargo.
0: That's very important. And the lender you're transitioning from, can you sign into a portal on their website and see mm-hmm. what balance they're reflecting for you and what payments they've credited? Yeah, I can go in and do that. Yeah, do that. Second thing I want you to do is I want you to print out what's known as an amortization schedule.
4: Okay.
0: That's something you can do for free on the web. Just just pop in amortization schedule. You'll see all these people that offer you the ability to print one out for free. Put in the nature of your loan, you know, when it was originally taken out, the interest rate and all that, and where you are now with it, and it'll show you exactly how paying off that loan should track okay so you're able to see what the balance should be repeatedly through the process oh good to know so i hope that everything will go swimmingly but if it doesn't the fact that you'll be keeping track of the balance is very valuable to you if you have to challenge wells later that wells fargo either out of incompetence or dishonesty messed up your loan balance It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at clark.com. Producer Joel asks it for you. And Joel, what's up? Clark, Edward wants to know, what's a good website to go to for a list of discounts for veterans? Edward, I don't know what branch you served in, but thank you so much for your service to our country. Military.com is a great place to go as a clearinghouse on the web. At Clark.com, we now have a military assistance guide, and one of the things we have on it are discounts and deals available to military personnel, and I just am so thankful to all the brave men and women who served today or have served in the past in the U.S. military. All right, Cynthia asks, what is your opinion on selling homes to companies like Knock, OfferPad, and We Buy Ugly Homes? Is it safe to sell to them? Uh, we Buy Ugly Homes is a different kind of business model than the others. Uh, we Buy Ugly Homes is really an effort when, let's say, as an example, an uh, elderly relative has passed away and you are the administrator or executor who's got to dispose of the house. And... The house kind of aged and needs a lot of work to it. That's the marketplace served by uh, We Buy Ugly Houses or any of the people who have the signs along the road that will do a quick sale to you. They do the fix-up. They make a spread for taking on that chore. Now, with OfferPad and Knock and the other newer entities that you can go on the web and then answer some questions, and then they give you back an offer of what they'll pay you for your home. What these companies do is they're looking for a typical home seller in a suburban community in a, a mid-price kind of home. They're not looking to take on really inexpensive homes or really expensive homes in a market and what's really expensive varies by market they're looking for the mid-market housing market where they can pretty well estimate what a home will bring in the marketplace so you give up a little bit of what you might make for selling your home in return for the certainty that you are done with that home I think it's no harm no foul to see what one of these companies will offer you for your home